Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, on which we are discussing A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. This week, Tim is not with us. He was called away by his day job to some far place where he's going to be in meetings and talking to fancy people and stuff like that. Does that sound about right, Heidi? It does. And I would like to point out, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure who the weak link on the show is, but it's definitely not me by the way that the last, the last couple of weeks have gone. So I'm not ready to make a final call on the matter. I'm just saying I've been here at every single episode. It at least means that you're available. That's true. Availability, they say in, in it's sport, strength. It's is, like an ancient it, Chinese saying. I'm sure of exactly. It. Availability is strength. I'm sure that's yeah. Cool. Um, if my audio sounds a little weak, it's because well, I don't have my normal usual setup, so it was not available. <laughs> so uh, so Again. I apologize that I sound like I'm just talking into my computer because I'm just talking into my computer. Because but you, you are. Know, you do what you do to get the get the people their their content. That's right. Get the people what they want. Exactly. They want David Kern. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they want, they want the group talking about, talking about books. So of course we, um, we're going to be discussing a Confederacy of Dunces. This is chapters 10 and 11 this week. Don't forget that we've got lots of other great content as well. The first episode of the plays, the thing on Henry, the fourth part one is now up. So Henry, the fourth part one, uh, act one, that conversation is available to you, you know, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, our kids podcast, Withy Wendell, is uh, coming to the end of season two this week. We'll have an episode up with uh, the great Ben Hatke, who's a great uh, illustrator and, and author. But that's the ninth episode of this season. And of course, we also have bibliography. The most recent episode was with Jess Walter, who's a personal favorite author of mine. Uh, so lots of lots of things for you to check out out there. And of course, Heidi and I are both doing the daily poem when we can keep up with it. <laughs> uh, this year, this time it's a little crazy, but best intentions and so forth. <laughs> All right. That's right. Everyone's busy anyway. They got so much Christmas shopping to order online. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, just want to say thank you to everyone who has been ordering from bookshop.org. We have definitely felt that support this year and that's been a super de-stressor for us. So just want to say that for Bethany and I, that is, um, that's huge. And we're really grateful. So to everybody who has been supporting Goldberry books and Goldberry studios through that, just want to say thank you. And of course, to everyone who supports the show on Patreon, thank you as well. Okay. All that is out of the way now. We can talk about Ignatius J. Riley, his grossness and all of his pals um, and various pals slash enemies. You're never really sure within any given scene whether he likes someone or doesn't. But I want to talk a little bit about the grossness factor. We did this a little bit in the first episode but I want to kind of change the angle on this if you're up for that, Heidi, because you have mentioned in text yeah. and in, on the show how gross he is, how he just kind of grosses you out, how you think this is a, it's a I think you said a weird, wild, interesting book, something like that. Um, it's a book that clearly is straining the loyalties of some of our listeners <laughs> to the show. Um, <laughs> some people are just flat not doing it, which is totally cool. Um, we took a risk by doing this. Um, we, we knew that, but I wanted to talk about this sense of his grossness and what we think Ignatius J. Riley represents or why, I guess, why did John Kennedy tool make him as gross as he did? But I want, I'm wondering if there is a sort of, you know, as you, as a medievalist and then Ignatius J. Riley as a wannabe medievalist, you're like at least a little, a level above Ignatius J. Riley. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> two notches above um, <laughs> the idea of him being physically gross seems to me like it must play into the medieval concepts that are being presented in this book you know whether it's the um, his his um, flatulence or his physical appearance or the way his physical appearance is like an objective correlative for what's going on inside of him. All of these things seem like they would play into the medieval aspect of the book. And before I ask you to give us a hour long lecture on this topic, I want to give some context for why I'm bringing this up because Tim and I were talking a little bit about how we don't find this this stuff gross. 
And what we realized, it seems like there's a very, like, it's divided, like, along gender lines. Like, women find it gross. Men don't find it gross. We tend to find it more funny. And I know that this is, like, I'm overgeneralizing for the sake of the conversation. It's a little bit like how 10-year-old boys and 10-year-old girls are different, maybe. But, you know, and, and like, laugh at hard jokes and so forth. But to me, when I look at what John Kennedy Tool is doing with Ignatius J. Riley, is so over the top as to not be even realistic. Like it's almost cartoonish. Mm-hmm. It's like a caricature. It's like Looney Tunes. And so I don't find it that gross because it seems unrealistic. Like it seems like John Kennedy Tool himself is like, no one's really like this. And I'm making it bigger and grosser. And the bigger and grosser he gets, the more like the less gross it is. I don't know if that makes sense. So I was thinking about that. And then I was trying to think, well, what some people do think like really are revolted by it, mm-hmm. but why does it matter that he's so gross? Because whether you are revolted by it or view it as like cartoonish, there's a reason it's here. So what do we think he is trying to say or do in this story by making this character gross. And then I was even thinking about how in this section, when Mr. Levy is responding to things, he keeps talking about how he's like going to get an ulcer. He's, he's got indigestion when he's there, like all kinds of people are always responding to what's going on around them by describing what has attacked them physically whether it's Ignatius Mm. J. Riley or his mother's feet or, you know, um, all the characters and some like keep, keep bringing up my body is being, is attacking me. And it's like, they're blaming it on all the people around them. So does this have to do something with um, how the medievals viewed or thought about the body? Do you think that was my long way of chance to think? (laughs) Um, I do think that that has something to do with it. First, medieval humor was very physical. Farce was a very big deal in in medieval times. That was that was what was humorous, and the physicality of of their lives was so much more uh, potent, I guess, than ours is. Right? They didn't shower. They didn't have in, they they didn't have any way to deal with like body odor and bad breath and all that kind of uh, that that kind of thing. Um, and so I think that the the grossness of the body was so much more prevalent. Um, it was a very body forward kind of cultural uh, in, uh, experience with life. Um, and I, I think that, that that is part of what he's doing uh, in, in the book is forcing us as moderns who kind of keep everything tidy and clean. And we don't like to talk about that. And if we do, it's always um, in the context of humor. Right. Um, yeah. That mm. part, I think that's part, I think that's part of what he's used kind of forcing the physicality of the body in our face and making us come to terms with it. Uh, and with yeah. all the characters, not just Ignatius J. Riley. Uh, yeah. I also think that um, there's a, uh, there, there's such a divide even in medieval literature. Like Shakespeare is so different from Chaucer, right? Like Dante with his like elegance and uh, you know the medieval cosmology and the circular nature of the spheres and the music of the spheres and all that kind of thing. This like high culture uh, medievalism that I'm drawn to, that Ignatius J. Riley is drawn to, versus kind of the uh, uh, the lower level of medieval. Uh, literature, like with Chaucer, in which every you know people are always like farting in Chaucer and throwing up, and um, and and there's all this physicality and all this like the nature of the gross nature of the body is shoved in your face, um, uh, and and so I, I think that the dissonance to that is something that that um, John Kennedy Tool is forcing us again, forcing us like rubbing it in our face. Um, so yeah. I think that yes, medieval for sure. 
Also, I think, David, what you keep drawing us back to, which I really appreciate on social media and on the podcast, is the nature of vice and virtue that's being explored in this novel. Uh, and, and that, I think, has something really important um, to do with the, the gross physicality, the excess, right? The gluttony and the sloth uh, and the greed and the avarice. Uh, that Those are very physical, venial like very, very bodily sins, um, along yeah. with then on the other hand, the sins of the head, right? The pride, the envy um, yeah. uh, that that he's struggling with too. Um, but his lust and his gluttony and his sloth are very bodily sins. Um, and so yeah. that the absence of the chest then, as we've talked about, without the mediating yeah. factor of the nobility of his heart, then he's got a head full of vices and a belly full of vices. And we see that in his physical nature and the more he gives in to those things the more he feels bad and the more his body is like trying to cleanse it's like when he talks about the his valve opening and closing and things like that it almost reads like his body is trying to revolt against him which he seems to be saying he seems to recognize that but it's like his body is trying to emit or cleanse his vice, like the results of his vices. And the, the more he gives into them, the worse he feels and right. the worse he appears to other people. Like the more he gives into those vices, the more other people look at him and are terrified by him or just think he's ugly. It, it, it almost reads like a fable in that way. I agree. Yeah, for like, sure. I think in many ways this is meant to be read as like a modern fable. And for modern people, so much of like a dark comedy, not unlike Chaucer, like, you know, some, some things never change, I guess. I was going to say for modern people, I think a dark comedy communicates so much, but that was true of Chaucer's age too. Right, and yeah. You, well, you brought up Chaucer. Do you think that the humors, like when what they represent, like with the bile and all that kind of stuff, do you think that that, is playing into this here as well. I do. I think, I mean, there are so many of these, uh, these overtones and these undertones that, that as someone who's interested in medieval times, I, I, I'm following them. Um, when we read the book of the Dun Cow, there was so much medieval high culture. Here we have a lot of medieval low culture. Um, and, and it works. It's very funny. Without knowing that, though, you could still read the novel and it's still hilarious. Yeah. Like, you don't need yeah. to know that background. But it yeah. is, I think, that he, he is creating a dissonance between the high and the low that you do even see in Shakespeare, right? When um, you have like the high characters and the low characters. Um, and what Shakespeare manages to do, we've done a lot of comparison in the last, in the last episode, and then now we're doing Henry the Fourth, and so we have false stuff on the brain, Tim and I do. Um, and so we have yeah. these two, you know, fat men of the belly, uh, driven by lust and gluttony. Um, yeah. And but Falstaff succeeds, I think, where Ignatius J. Riley fails in some way, um, not because they are very different. Um, but Shakespeare yeah. did the same thing. Like he did the same thing when he did the contrast between the high culture and the low culture. And it's very jarring to the to the yeah. um, to the audience. And yet what it does is it forces the audience to he, he uses the same themes in the high culture versus the low culture, and the high plot versus the low plot Shakespeare does. So you see the, the high plot, uh, the, the nobility falling in love in this elevated style, whereas in the low plot, they're falling in love and overcoming their obstacles to love in kind of a farcical style. Um, mm. But it's the same theme, and it kind of forces the humanity of the multiple levels of society upon the audience um, and gives us something to laugh at and then something to root for, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And But it kind of feels like, a confederacy of dunces is just low plot. Like it's just Falstaff and Madame Dahl in the, in the alley on the back of the tavern. Right. Um, and yeah. it doesn't have that high plot. Um, and so I think some people are kind of wrestling with that, but if you think of it as a low plot of Shakespeare, it might, it, it might make it a little bit more appealing. Maybe. Do you think that, do you think that the sort of emphasis on, the low plot is just kind of a product of it being a modern novel. Like the, the modern novel perhaps is less inclined to, to, to be consumed with the high plot or con- the, con- the contrast between the high and the low. 
Maybe. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I, I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. No, it's good. I'm not, I'm not shooting it down. I don't, um, it does, it has such a, to me, and I've said this before David, and I'm, I'm waiting to be convinced of it. It has, you, you brought up the physicality and the grossness, like there, it is there for me. And so you said, it, and you're right. It is so over the top, like the protruding hot dogs and the valve and all of it. Like it is so over the plot is to be completely unrealistic. And, and therefore um, like almost like so out of bounds that it's just funny and not realistic. I do get that, but I still am like grossed out by it. Um, and so I think that I don't even know how to imagine what he's saying is the thing. Right. Sometimes that's true. There are so, and I have to say, I will say, and I said this last week when you weren't here, that Ignatius J. Riley is like my favorite character. Like I think it's I'm I mean, hit the 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 hot dog bits in his mustache does make me throw up in my mouth a little bit. I'm not gonna lie. Um and like the yeah. yellowed sheets, like just yeah, in the middle gross. of the sentence. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, it is gross, but it's also like, I guess, I guess what I'm responding to a little bit is like people not wanting to read the book because of that. Right. And not just, I mean, I'm not like, it, that just seems weird to me. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Fair. I, I get that. And I think he's hilarious. Like there are some scenes in this week's reading that were just so funny to me. I was like reading them to my children. Like I, I, I like, it's one of those, I want to share it with somebody because it's so funny, Um, but it's less him. Like to me, what is off-putting about the novel is less like Ignatius J. Riley's like gross body. Although I am a little bit like, but I I think some of it is like, I I can't find anybody to root for. Um, I find like the tawdry, squalid kind of like small souled people depressing. The interesting, the the idea of needing to have people to root for is a really interesting concept. Uh And it's one that gets put, talked a lot Mm -hmm. about in contemporary fiction and movies and television. Do you think that that is something that people thought about in, in the arts 300 years ago? Like, or the middle or the Greeks, you know, was like trying to create people that you, that you would want to root for? No, I don't think, I think it's modern. It's a good question. I think it's modern because 300 years ago and and before that, uh, the goal was to create a model worth imitating, right? An ideal type. Uh, And, and, and we've moved so far beyond that in modern literature that now we're just talking about someone I can even remotely like and root for and wish something good on, right? That's a massive shift, a profound shift, a fundamental shift. But I mean, no, I don't think Homer was thinking, I'm going to try to create a hero worth rooting for. Achilles seems like a good guy, right? Like, I'm going to try to make him likable. No, he was trying to to give us an ideal hero. Um, And I think that's one of the things, having just read Lord of the Rings, that's what Tolkien was doing is that's why, you know, so many criticisms against Tolkien are leveled. They're leveled at him with your characters are too black and white. Your good guys are too good and your bad guys are too bad. Right. Who am I supposed to root for? And Tolkien's like, you're supposed to root for the good guys. (laughs) Like that's here's a really good guy, like not just a good guy, but an ideal guy, a type of Christ. And, but that's, we're so far past that in modernity that now we're just like, I hope I can get somebody to care enough about my characters to stick it out through this novel. Um, so, well, okay, but yeah. I mean, I don't, I, just to continue on devil's advocate here, I guess. What's the difference between rooting for somebody to succeed and hoping that someone who is in a bad place improves? Because sometimes like a character like this, he has a lot going for him and and like, he's not a hero. He doesn't evince a lot of virtue. Right. But I think one of the reasons why the book is compelling is because of the possibility, the Hmm. capacity that he could have had to be virtuous. Hmm. And I think a lot of the anti-heroes that we talk about in, in 
the last 20 years of fiction and storytelling, you know, TV and movies and things like that. They're compelling, not because they're evil or because they're flawed. They're compelling because their flaws reveal what could have been or could be. And that's why we end up rooting for them against our better judgment. Not because we want to see them continue to do bad things because we, we, there is something inherent about them that could have been better. And so you, you, in part, at least we hope that they, that some redemption is coming for them. And that happens in varying degrees, depending on the creator of the work that we're looking at, you know? So the question ultimately to me becomes, is this unheroic character in a story that ultimately is nihilistic or not? Because in the end, when we get to the end of this book, are we going to look at it and say, well, this is a nihilistic book about nothing? Or are we going to say, this is a book about a deeply flawed, broken character, but this is why it matters. Like it matters that he's broken and he's flawed. And this is why, as opposed to he's broken and flawed and the world is just a broken and flawed place. And we're all up, we're all just screwed. Like those are two very different things to me and can keep a book from being, from like being genuinely depressing. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I also don't need a book hopeful to to be fair. I'm not like, that's not something I need. Like I don't look, I don't even look for it. So I I admit, I'm just going to add that as a qualifier to what I'm saying. And that's not true of many, perhaps many people and certainly not all. I really like this conversation. So I'm going to answer your question to the best of my ability. And then I'm going to flip it and ask you a couple of questions. Um, it's I, conversation is what you're saying. Yeah, right. I, yes. So we've compared Ignatius J. Riley with Falstaff several times. I even did it earlier in the episode. I'm the first to admit I'm not crazy about Falstaff in, for the same reasons I'm not crazy about Ignatius J. Riley. However, Falstaff is one of the greatest characters in English literature, like hands down. And he is, he's bigger than he's in, he's in a, three of Shakespeare's plays. Um, Henry the fourth's part one and two, excuse me, four Henry the fourth part one and two. And then Henry the fifth, he steals every scene he's in. He's bigger than the play. He is a magnificent character. He's also gluttonous, lustful, Fat, flatulent, unappealing, like he's all the things that Ignatius J. Riley is, with one exception, Falstaff is very jolly um, and and happy. And Ignatius J. Riley is very grumpy and prideful, right? So there's personality-wise, they're different, but they have the same vices. But what the difference is, is that Shakespeare created Falstaff to have a longing that is evident from the time that he's on the stage, this time he walks on the stage, it is clear. This is a character that in spite of all of his vices, he has this childlike longing to be loved. Not not just laughed at, not just enjoyed, not just like taken out drinking with the guys, but to be deeply and truly loved. And he has this affection for the prince, for Prince Hal, and this bond between them that you know from the start is doomed. And yet he is so pathetic in the true sense of pathos that you find yourself, I'm going to use the word, rooting for him to have that longing met, right? I, I do not see that at all in Ignatius J. Riley. I, I can't get there with him. I see a grief. I see a sadness. I see a brokenness. I see no chink in the armor of his, uh, I don't know even what to say. Like there's, there's no invitation to the reader to get behind his vices, but you can see like he's psychologically consistent, right? Like he has, he doesn't have a father. He's like, I mean, you can understand mm-hmm. where he's coming from, right? Um, however, now in me saying that, I also mm-hmm. have to clarify, I know Shakespeare, Shakespeare, and that this is a totally different kind of book. This is a humor book. This is this is not there for the same purpose. But I think that 
like knowing this relationship between Falstaff and the Princess Doomed, and then finding out later how it ends, just man, it just hits you and like so hard in watching these plays. And, and it makes then Falstaff this enduring character that most people have this like very great affection for. Mm. Um, and I, I'm not getting that in Ignatius J. Riley. However, one more, one more caveat. He, John Kennedy tool reminds me so, so much of Walker Percy and Walker Percy's characters are just like that too. Kind of unappealing and unlikable throughout the whole thing. And it totally works. So I'm very, very willing to say a lot of the reason why it doesn't work for me, even though I find him hilarious, but I'm not rooting for him is honestly, again, to arrive back at the beginning, because I think he's gross. So, oh, you mentioned uh, that you mentioned that Falstaff is jolly, which is a distinct, the distinct the key distinction you made between him and Ignatius. personality wise. Yeah. Yeah. Let me say that again. <laughs> personality wise. Yeah. Logan, you're going to take that out because I had an <laughs> apple in my mouth. <laughs> do you think so if we look at the like if we look at the the four the humors and like do you think it's it almost seems like in false these are two they're like the same people in many ways one's obviously medieval one is modern but in false we have someone who's like sanguine he has an right. optimism about about life about the world it, his in a way that almost becomes vicious it becomes it allows him to be overcome by vice right. and then in um and then in ignatius we also have someone we almost have someone who's like call would it be choleric i guess yeah bad yeah temper, he probably is choleric yeah um mm-hmm. and and that's that bad temper and that irritability that the, the choler the, the choleric humor we're talking about like the four humors this kind of ancient way of looking at character and people and things like that would it's like what leads him into vice hmm. and so i'm yeah. wondering if like, i don't know i'm not saying that john kennedy tool is doing this on purpose but it's an interesting way to think about their characters because i find myself when i read ignatius i am rooting for him like Why? i hate him and i and i and be, and I think one of the because for me when I read the book I've talked about how it's like reading somebody on Twitter, you know he has that line that's so amazing it's so amazing he's I was gonna I was gonna open the show with this through two forty eight it's in the middle of chapter ten I am the avenging sword of taste and decency Ignatius was shouting as he slashed at the sweater with his broken weapon the ladies began to dash out the Royal Street end of the alley like that line <laughs> excuse me is absolutely so brilliant like when john kennedy tool wrote that line i'm telling you he got up and walked out and was like my day is done (laughs) (laughs) it's the best thing i've ever done (laughs) it's so good but it's also so representative of like what the modern man has to do to feel meaning to feel like you're accomplishing something you have to be like the avenging sword of taste and decency and he has this longing somewhere inside of him partly attributable to his studies like the things that he has looked at and believed to be true through his worldview um he has this longing for things that are higher for taste and decency but he doesn't have the capacity to control himself and so he all he can try to do is control other people. And he thinks that he, he does that through a sort of avenging violence. Like he, the only way he knows how to do that because he doesn't have any self-control, he doesn't have the chest, as you put it, is to like do violence. Like it's this like choleric, choleric violence to the people around him because he recognizes that something is wrong but he doesn't have the means or the tools or the psychological capability to, to do anything about it. And I think when I look at that, I see that as like being representative or like a fable for the world we live in. Hmm. And like, we've got people that we're all like that to some degree, the world itself is like that. There's like an, a sickness in the heart of in the soul of the world. And half the time, all we're doing is going around claiming that we are avenging 
you know, that we're the avenging swords of taste and decency. And it's just whatever we think is taste and decency. And then we all, we have duels over what is tasteful and decent. And now we do it all on social media. And like, we're so consumed by that. And most of us have no ability to control ourselves. We, we all have just varying degrees, inabilities to control ourselves. He has no ability. And so that caricature becomes a fable that causes me to feel pity for him to feel pathless because it feels like it's all around us. Like he is like representative of the bile that's coming out of the core of the earth. And so for me, like there's a dark poetry that you, that in that, that you almost, the only way to process it is to, to find some humor out of it. Like I'm making it a little more bleak. And I think that he has to, it can become a fable because it's a comedy. If it's not a comedy, then it's not a fable. Like we can't read it that way because we couldn't stomach it. Huh? So I think that's why he tries to make it funny. I don't, and I'm not saying this is like a perfect book. I think he fails in some very important ways. Um, but I think it's so compelling for the reasons that I'm saying here. And it's, and I think it's why people should read it that live in 20, 2022, which we're all in theory going to be living in, in 21 days. <laughs> um, knocking on wood. That was um, so good. That's the first defense of the book that actually changed my mind about it. I want to clap in my microphone. That was so good. What you well, said about good. seriously though, David, I'm serious. What you said about what the when you said what the modern man needs to do to find meaning, that is that what he's looking for? Is that what he wants? Is that his longing? The modern man or Ignatius? N- Ignatius as representative of the modern man. I, I, I think, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, look at every relate. He wants to feel, he wants people to feel like he's too, that like he's not a buffoon. He wants to feel like he, you know, he, and he gets into these depressive modes when he's not being successful. So he knows what he, he knows he's good at writing, for example. So he writes these diatribes, which we laugh at, but he means them so earnestly. They're funny because he means them, but he's saying things that are 75% nonsense with 25% bits of truth in them. But the way he says them is so over the top, but he means them like with, like he means them seriously. And because he means them seriously, they're funny, but like that circle of funniness is full of so much pathos. So we're laughing, but this, if you think about him as a character that's like has a soul, it's like bleak that we're laughing at him because he's going through something, and that that make that's what I think this book has a lot of layers of complexity because of that. But I think you have to be willing to to have some sympathy for him, like to look at this character. I think he has to be gross to challenge the reader to, right. to get at what he's trying, what Kennedy Tool is trying to do here. But then it has to be funny for us to endure it. And so I think he's walking a very tight line that is, like I said, it's not always successful, but it's so like, it's so, um, it's such a big swing about some very important things that it just makes it, that's why it's so compelling to me. So I think you just changed my mind about the book completely because that, even that makes so many things fall into place for me. I have not been able to figure out what he wants other than just to be right, you know, and to be vindicated. But I haven't been able to get underneath that. Do you um, think people want to be right for the sake of being right? Or that's do they what I was right just about to else? say. Ex- oh, exactly. Sorry. Sorry. No, you're no, no, I don't mean it that I don't mean like you were interrupting me. I just mean like that's exactly what I was trying to say. Like if he's looking for meaning, that to me makes the whole makes it fall into place and like he's on the search right he's like walker percy I, there's so many parallels between this it's book and walker the percy. Too. yes um he's on the search to go back to the moviegoer um mm-hmm. but the and i really like how you keep like turning this back into in this modern land and in, in our contemporary landscape this would be twitter and social media right and we all know that guy on social media 
probably 50 of those guys on social media. And I look down on those people on social media. And now I'm thinking, oh. And we laugh at the earnest diatribes they go on. And judge them. I confess that freely. Like, like, why in the world would you get on Facebook and argue about politics? That is so stupid. But (laughs) it, it makes... It makes sense to me in the context of a search for meaning in a landscape in in which the social media is the mirror into the meaning of our own souls, right? That And that then is, I mean, in a same, it's the same, maybe this is to your point about the gender difference. Not that there's plenty of women that don't go and diatribes on Facebook. There are and Twitter. There are. But like when I look at like a beautiful young woman on Instagram turning herself into a Visco girl, right? Like I feel, I don't feel contempt. I just feel grief for her. Like you don't have to do that to yourself. And, but I know what she's trying to do. She's looking for meaning. And so that, like what you just said, kind of shifted my, it didn't kind of, what you said shifted my perspective on the book. And I think into this vociferous social media uh, disaster that has our culture has become, it's something I've never been able to understand. And what you just said kind of helped me understand that. So when you look at, oh, I want to go back to something you said earlier, you said people are looking for somebody to root for. And you asked me why. And then you said, I never even think about that when I'm reading a book. It doesn't, that's not something I need. Can you talk about that a little bit? What is it that you're looking for then, if not that, in a a good character in a novel? Um, And the reason I ask that, yeah, I I think the reason I ask that is like to, when you say I'm not looking for that, I'm, I guess I'm asking in general, but even specifically in Confederacy of Dunces, like, what is it that you are seeing that I'm not seeing? I'm not, I, I know you're going to be polite and all that. And I want you to just not be like, what is it that you're seeing that you're like, Heidi, I think you're not seeing this or the, about, about this book or this character because you're looking for somebody to root for. Then what are you blind to or not noticing or paying attention to? So you can answer that from the perspective of what you see so that it doesn't seem like you're coming at me. Cause not that I care. <laughs> no. uh, I, I don't, I'm always looking, I'm trying to think of how exactly how to say what I'm looking for. Uh, Cause I don't know that I've ever thought about it. Like putting it into words in this way. <laughs> I don't know if I've named it quite in this way. I'm always looking for a character that I have questions about that is, that is complex like if you're going to if I can look if I can choose between a character to root for and a character that is going to be complex and leave me asking questions then I'm going to always choose the more complex one that leaves me asking questions now I'm not saying those can't be those are mutually exclusive but just for the sake of conversation mm-hmm. if I have to choose between those two that's what I'm choosing I also tend to find the characters who are most broken to be the most compelling so sometimes the uh, sometimes that can be the bad guy sometimes that can just be the sidekick who doesn't have their you know what together sometimes it's the actual protagonist i think i find that characters like that demand a degree of sympathy from me that is more challenging for me than to just root for somebody to like somebody who's already a good person to overcome some obstacle and I'm, this that's just a me thing i'm not saying like my proclivities in this way are not <laughs> like mm-hmm. better or worse i don't know i'm just kind of thinking out loud here since you asked but i don't know i'm trying to think now if like that e- those are even like what we're talking about i think they are though and i think because i i like those flawed characters too but i think what i've been missing with this book is what you just shed light on, which is what the characters want. And I feel like I should I should have seen it because it's not that hard now that I'm like, oh, they're looking for meaning in a meaningless world. Like that's what Walker Percy's writing about. And he's so much like Walker Percy. Um, 
but I think well, I was, I think, I think I was a bit blinded by the lack, my, my judgment of their vices, um, well, which think- is kind of the whole point that he's making. So I kind of fell into the trap. I think. I, I think the idea of creating characters who are looking for meaning in a meaningless world is like, it's a different way of having to think about storytelling. Like even when Dickens was writing, say the world was a different place. Like people didn't look at the world and think this is a meaningless place. We weren't raising our people weren't raising their kids. And that was not that long ago. You know, we weren't raising our kids in a world where it was just like, this is all nothing. What are we even doing here? Um, And again, I'm overstating what people actually say. (laughs) Very few people actually say this is all nothing, but they, but people act like it. Even then people didn't act like it very much. Um, If you did, you got put on a ship and you became a sailor and you got scurvy. Um, (laughs) Send you out somewhere like to the edge of the earth. Um, You get rejected. Oh no, I have scurvy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Maybe it did mean something or see, I told you. Um, But you know, then you get to the 20th century after the world wars, you have all of these, like people literally thinking about the universe, thinking about the world in a way that was completely different. And so the way people started thinking about writing and about storytelling became different too. And so I think we have a lot of different writers who, who are challenging that or trying to think about, think about how to present characters in that world in new ways. And they did it in, you know, Percy and John Kennedy tool did it in a different way than, you know, someone like Philip Roth did, or, you know, who choose any late 20th, you know, novelist from the second half of the 20th century. And then they did it different than Wendell Berry and Marilyn Robinson are doing. And I'm just lumping them together because they're people who actually believe in God and are telling stories. Right. And then, you know, and then like you got Evelyn Waugh's version of that. You've got O'Connor's version of that. And all these people are confronting a world, which is like, imploded and they're trying to find a way to help us understand how to survive that world. And when I actually, when I look at Ignatius J. Riley, I look at somebody who is like longing to be Flannery O'Connor, who is right. longing to be say Philip Roth or who who's wants longing to be a meaning maker and a Charles Taylor yeah. or yeah, yeah, exactly. You look at every, every time he gets into some kind of scrape that makes people hate him more you know, he talks about revolutions and he talks about like helping races that are races of people that are being denigrated or whatever. It all backfires on him, but he does it because he's trying to find some kind of meaning in the world. And he's trying to, because he has read Boethius who says there's meaning in the world. He's read the medievals. He's read the ancients. He knows that those people had an experience in the world that is different than what he has been put set down in. And he wants to be the kind of person who can help other people find that. But because he is so consumed by his vices, he has no capacity to actually do that. So everything implodes and he gets buried under his own implosion. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, then that's why it sinks so much. Right. And so I think it's really like, to me, then he becomes somebody who I like, I want characters who I can have sympathy for and like, and that's different to me than rooting for the somebody like feeling like I already can like someone hmm. that's, you know, that that's, that's the thing when people say they want someone who they can root for. I hear that. Tell me if I'm wrong. I hear that as someone saying this person is noble or good in some way. So I want them to accomplish something and defeat hmm. overcomes evil. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and maybe no, I'm not saying that's not good by the way. <laughs> No, no, no. I, I hear what you're saying. I think that's not, I think that that, I do like that in a story. That's true. I like noble characters. Do you think in a that's story. what most people are saying when they say they want someone to root for? Maybe. Why can't we I root think, for bad people to change? Well, and I, but, but I also think, and this, one, one thing I struggle with a lot. So this is just like confession, the confessions of Heidi White who's not necessarily being the greatest reader on this novel because there's obstacles in my way. Right. So these are like, these are preference obstacles that have been thrown up in my way in this particular novel. And as I said last week, and yes, what I said last week with Tim um, was I, 
I cannot tell if I like this novel or not. And I still feel just as confused um, because on the one hand, it's been a really mm. long time since I've laughed out loud in reading. And I have <laughs> laughed like my head off in reading this novel. Yeah. It's well written. It's witty. It's, it's smart. Like there's, I actually really like Ignatius J. Riley as a character. Um, and even like the, I keep seeking Lucy out because my daughter, Lucy, she's 12 and she's the same as me. We have like the same kind of like revulsion to physical humor. And so I keep finding her and like reading to her through closed doors. Like I'm like shouting at her through the closed doors, reading her these like descriptions of the hot dog protuberances and things. Um, and, and I'm like laughing so hard. I'm like crying, like tears in my eyes. However, here's what I mean by the, here's what I mean by the rooting for. And I don't know about other listeners or readers. I don't care what happens to anybody. I don't care what happens to Ignatius. I have, I don't care what happens to any of the secondary characters or Levy pants or whether or not (laughs) Jones is able to uncover the orphan slash prostitution ring. Like I don't care because (laughs) however funny I find it, I have no investment in the salvation of a single character in this novel. So do you, do you think that the absurdity, I mean, as you're listening to all those things, I just started laughing because I was like, yeah. <laughs> it's all so absurd. And I think that that, again, they like are. I said, his attempt to make it palatable. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that that gets in the way of you being able to care what happens? Like that cycle of that, that, that like, line that I, I was don't. Yes. Like, this is what I'm talking about. Like when I read Henry, when I read the Henry ad, I think, and here's a spoiler, but it's not going to ruin the play. You should still watch the play or read it. It's it's brilliant. I believe that Prince Hal should cut off and sever all relations with Falstaff. But when it happens, I'm weeping every single time. I don't like Falstaff and I don't think he should be friends with the king. I think he's a bad influence. I think he is the downfall of his kingship. But every single time, every time that I read or watch that play and, and Prince and, and King Henry turns and says, I know you not, I'm crying like a baby because I care so much what happens to these characters. And I don't care at all what happens to anybody in this novel. Can I, can I ask you? Yeah, please. I'm not, this is, it's not, I mean, to challenge you. Do you think that that is because of how Shakespeare can execute a scene like that so well? So the scene itself has so much pathos in it. So when you get to the moment, you can't, you can't get through the moment without it being moving. Or do you think it's because the actual character himself has been built in such a way that when you get to it, you care about him when he's rejected. I think both. I think both. And because Shakespeare's done is such a good job of plotting the story so that there's something at stake. What I see in this novel are two failures that I may be in me as a reader, or they may mm-hmm. be in the novel. One is that it's, and what I think, what I think probably really could be me. It's that the, the characters are so ignoble and so vulgar, mm-hmm. so ugly on purpose that I don't have a stake in their salvation, whatever that means and within the world of the novel. Yeah. Yeah. The second yeah. is that I can't tell what this book is about. I don't know what the plot is. It, it's also episodic, mm-hmm. um, which one yeah, I, do I think, think, Oh, go ahead. Well, I think that I think that him not living and not going through an editorial process that would have normally happened with him. I think that that has, I think that the book is flawed in that way. Like, I think it could still be episodic and still be tighter. And I, and I do think that right. kind of the tragedy that surrounds his death ends up impacting how the book is read. I, I agree that there, there, that is a little bit flawed. Um, so I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably the biggest thing like that. My resistance to the vulgarity could really just be my own like fastidiousness. I'm very 
I'm well, very yeah, willing yeah. to like, yeah, I'm very willing to admit that um, you, or consider that. Think, though, but do you think that it's the absurdity that's imbued in the story that, that keeps him from allowing us to have any sort of relationship with the character? Like, is it maybe, the I mean, but absurd? some of it's some of, I mean, to your point though, like Woodhouse is extremely funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like really care what happened to that cow creamer. Right. <laughs> I you, cared yeah. about it. I, I, I didn't like care about it in the sense that I'm like weeping, but like yeah. I had to read it to the end because I was like, where, what, what was the deal with the cow creamer? Right. Like I, even, even though it's not the point, yeah, like it's creates a mystery. It, yeah. It's the, yes. I, and that I feel like is missing in this. I, what I'm hoping for is that, and I, and I can see it already happening. I haven't read ahead, but I can see how he's kind of like bringing, like converging the threads of, mm-hmm. of the story. Like they're all kind of coming together and, oh, that girl in the Boethius picture is <laughs> the same stripper with the parrot. Like, <laughs> you're right. Saying it out loud is like, if you're not reading this novel and you're just listening to the episodes, you're like, what is even happening? Are they all doing drugs? The answer is no, we're not doing drugs. This is actually what's in the novel. To be so, fair, I can't necessarily, I can't comment on whether or not John Kennedy Tool is doing drugs. I genuinely <laughs> do not know. Um, I, think again, things, I think the I think the book's hilarious. <laughs> I think that one of the things that's um I agree, like figure trying to get your finger on where this is supposed to be going and what it's about, and in, in like not thematically, but plot-wise. I think we kind of have talked a lot about what it, thematically what it's about, but yeah, what it's, where it's going is, is a challenge. Um, and that's not necessarily even like, that's not uncommon with novels of this era. Um, and it's like kind of an True. ongoing criticism. <clears throat> Walker Percy has, you know, a lot of people say this, I mean, the movie goer last year, right. Which was about the same time of year um, on the show. I, I wonder if, I can't decide though how much of that it seems like Kennedy, John Kennedy Tool was doing on purpose. Like, is right. that sort of aimlessness meant to be part of the whole point? That like right. where do you go? You know, like is 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 he writing this novel from a place of despair for the world? And is he kind of seeing himself as like in in his worst moments? when he would try to fix the world, this is the results that would happen. I'm not, I'm like, I'm completely reading that into it. It's just me asking a question. I'm not saying I read an essay or a journal entry or something. It just makes me wonder, did, had he had the time to revise it, would he have been able to sharpen that either sharpening the plot or sharpening the aimlessness so that we understand exactly more like the point of it, you know, like, right. I, I would just, it's just, it is a tragedy obviously that he it's tragedy for far more reasons than that this book right. didn't get revised, but right. it's personal tragedy as well as a, a professional yeah. one for posterity, yeah. but you're right. What, what could it have been if it had, had that, like a really great editor to say, Hey, could we hone this over here or whatever? Yeah. Um, so for the people who just love this novel, crazy about it, like you brought up our, our mutual friend, Sean Johnson, incredible, well, incredibly smart. Right. Yeah, Anytime we can mention Sean on the air. Amazing. And he's crazy about this novel. So, and so David, for the people who do love it and, and are like, this is one of my favorite novels. I think it's brilliant. It's like, it's funny and it's insightful, blah, blah, blah. What is it that they love about it? I want to speak for Sean, but I, I think that truly the humor, the, the sort of, um, absurdist contemplation of modern man and modern culture is a big part of it. Um, but I think that they like that, how smart I th- you've talked about how smart it is. It's gross, but it's also really smart and it has these allusions to Boethius and it has these allusions to like, you know, contemporary politics, like all the communist stuff is so funny. Like it is. He wants, and the Freudian stuff is Keith. really funny, actually. Oh, the, yeah, like he, like John Kennedy Tool, that man was probably some sort of a genius. The way he's able to mm-hmm. balance all these ideas. Like, I know it's not perfect, 
but he, it's so compelling because he takes Freud and he takes the communism stuff and he takes it all and he just balances it and he tosses it up there and catches most of, I don't know what mixed metaphor I'm using right now, but <laughs> I think that's what really makes it compelling to people. Um, how smart it is while also being funny. I think you have to have it like, like absurd, the absurdity to really love this book. And then I also think that a lot of people can look at a lot of people who care about ideas can look at Ignatius and it be one of those, man, you have a lot of empathy for him because he cares about the ideas, but he can't figure out how to express that care. He cares about the world and he wants to make a difference, but boy, does he do a bad job and he doesn't have, you know, it's almost like a there, but for the grace of God, go I thing. I think, and I think that that's a big part of it for people who do love it. We'll have to have Sean on or something to actually make his case. But those are all things that for me, um, stand out. And I, I just want to say again, I don't think this is a, this is not like a great book with a capital G or whatever. For me, what it is, is a really compelling book. It's not a perfect book. It's a compelling book. And it's so full of things that make me think. It makes me laugh, but it also gives me questions. And frankly, there's like 10 pages of prose that are just like, what did I just read? I would, te- totally. I would never write anything that good, you know? And those, those are the, that's a thing for me. Like when I, read a par- when I read a page of prose that makes me want to put the book down and go bury my head in the sand, that's a, that's like, I sent you one, a couple, the first couple of pages of a book that I just started reading and I wrote in the book and I was like smacked in the face by the sentences. That's a pretty big thing for me too. And that this book does that every now and then. I agree with that completely. Um, I, I think this is one of the best written books that we've read this entire year. I mean, just in in terms of the writing and how to put a sentence together, it's like stunning. Like it's so good. It's really hard to write funny things. Yeah, it like is. it's it's really hard to be funny in writing. It's right up there with that frog and toad book you read to my daughter. <laughs> I don't actually know if you read Frog and Toad. I just <laughs> um, Frog and Toad is really good. Every <laughs> year we read the cookie story during the fast. So yeah, smart. they tie up the cookies and put it on top of the refrigerator. It's called willpower. <laughs> you, so there's a um, Twitter account. Uh, I think it's just frog and toad or friends or something like that. And they just post random lines from frog and toad every, every like a couple times a day. It's so good. That's so great. <laughs> like, frog and toad out of context. <laughs> <laughs> That's hey, pretty um, awesome. Is there anything else you want to, you think we should talk about? I have kind of just like the last half hour kind of just ramble here, but you know, Tim wasn't here to save you. So (laughs) I don't need to be saved by Tim. I can handle Uh, life. You're a perfectly capable adult woman. I don't, (laughs) (laughs) um, I don't, I don't, I just, I think that that scene, in spite of everything that I have said, (laughs) <laughs> on this show about what I didn't like, what I'm struggling with about this novel, that whole scene when he takes the hot dog cart down to the quarter and goes <laughs> through all the paintings and then has the fight with the fairy air quotes. Yeah. They're his yeah, words, right. not mine. Like it's yeah. just well, a, lot, a couple characters call him that. So great. Yes. I just wanted to be clear that that is not what I, I, that is not me, but right. it's right. Yeah. just awesome. Do you, it's really, uh, I keep using this word, but it's really compelling to me that he gravitates towards the, mo- the most outsidery characters of their yes. neighborhood. And they seem to gravitate towards him. And at first they hate him and then they'll like him and then they'll hate him again. And he has this uneasy relationship with them, but they can't stop converging. Right. And that's compelling. Like that, that says something about him. He just can't figure out how to get out of his own way. Right. Well, and what you said about, I noticed that he's so drawn to these marginalized characters. He wants to like start a movement and just save the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so funny. It's 
like all the cutlass imagery, like everything about it is funny. <laughs> and I, what you said earlier about him looking for meaning sheds so much light, like that helps that fall into place for me, like how he can be such an ass while at the same time have like this, uh, like true desire to help in a sense, like, but also, also with his true desire to help, he's dominating and power hungry. And like, it's, it has this contradiction, but that search for meaning as being the true longing of his heart and that sense that's, you know, disguised by all these despicable things that, that helps, I think, tie his character together to me beyond just the psychological level, which I think is perfectly clear within the novel, his relationship with his dad and his mom and his lusts and all those kinds of things. Like he's a very, very well-drawn Freudian character. Um, and and it's he's he just works on many levels, but that idea of it being he's on the search, right? And yeah. um, that that ties, I think, all those multiple levels of interpretation together for me. It just occurred to me that he is kind of like a giant corporation. In go on, <laughs> he's like some giant. I don't know. Let's say. I genuinely do not have a specific company in mind. He's like a giant car company or oil company, or I don't know, social media company who is talking all the time about, about these big ideals, right. About peace in the world and equality and love and, you know, all the things like all these buzzwords, but then when he goes out to actually do something about it, he just like, you know, you can't, you can't both talk about equality and peace and also destroy the environment, you know? <laughs> right. and, and that's kind of what he does. He has, he talks, you know, he has that line where he says, I mean, like it's deeply ironic. And but he says, um, it's two fifty one. Of course, Ignatius said in a thoughtful, serious voice, this could be a worldwide deception. The red sateen scarf rode up and down. The next war could turn out to be one massive orgy. Good grief. How many of the military leaders of the world may simply be deranged old sodomites acting out some fake fantasy role? I can't believe I'm reading this on the podcast. Actually, this might be quite beneficial to the world, he says. It could mean an end to war forever. This could be the key to lasting peace. And then the man, the, the guy he's talking to says, it could, it certainly could. The young man said pleasantly, peace at any price. And like, he keeps going back. Like he has these big, philosophical ideas that he likes ultimate goods that he thinks are worth fighting for, but he doesn't know how to fight for them without also ruining the environment. <laughs> you know? So great. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he, I mean, even his, we have to say this, like his whole plan to save the world through putting, as he calls them, sodomites into power is like so full of like the very worst stereotypes of that lifestyle. Right. <laughs> and it's, and yet he thinks of it as like a noble cause, right? They're exactly. all going to wear feather boas and like, it's so, it is funny. Right. And not it's also anything. really I mean, sad and angry yeah. and it's so great. It's perfect. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's what makes the book like so Weird. <laughs> yep. Weird and wild. It's quite a ride to read. All right. Well, we'll get to the end and we'll talk about more weird and wild wildness and weirdness. Any final thoughts? You know, my final thought is that the next book we're reading is Loving, right? Just we're doing one episode on yeah, it. Henry episode Green's Loving. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that is weirder and wilder. Get ready. Buckle up. Um, it's such a weird book. Yeah. In a totally different way. Um, oh, also final, final thought, mm-hmm. um, how the guy, um, the young man with the cashmere sweater, Yeah. Uh, how his name was Dorian green made me laugh so hard. Yeah. Like I was like crying, um, which we should. So I would like to put in a request at someday read the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. I love that book. I'm crazy about it. And I, and it's even, even that tiny little detail, it's about a young man who wants to live a dissipated lifestyle. And so somehow through some kind of intervention on behalf of something, a portrait of him bears all of the ravages of the physical ravages of his lifestyle 
goes onto the portrait so that he can still look young and fresh and go out and live this horrible life. And and so even that tiny little detail that this young man is calls himself Dorian green is like, it, it is, it, it adds just like a little bit, it adds a little bit to the story because as you pointed out, David, Ignatius J. Riley is a man who, whose outside appearance yeah. reflects his inner vices. And Dorian Gray is about a yeah. person whose outside uh, uh, appearance does not reflect his vices. And so even that little thing was like yeah. kind of com- was like interesting to me. So yeah. John Kennedy tool, hats off to you. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that illusion is really. Yeah, that's great. You could not know anything about it, but it, it's still, and still enjoy it, but that really does open some things up before we go. I want to read, um, probably my favorite paragraph in the whole book. Um, so two fifty five. it's when he's, um, he's talking to, um, the young man about his, what his reading plan should be. He says, most fools don't comprehend my worldview at all. I wouldn't imagine. So I suspect that beneath your offensively and vulgarly effeminate facade, there may be a soul of sorts. Have you read widely in Boethius? <laughs> Who? Oh, heavens no. I never even read newspapers. Well, then you must, and then this is it. Then you must begin a reading program immediately so that you may understand the crisis of our age, Ignatius said solemnly. Begin with the late Romans, including Boethius, of course. Then you should dip rather extensively into early medieval. You may skip the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. That is mostly dangerous propaganda. And now that I think of it, you had better skip the Romantics <laughs> and the Victorians too. For the contemporary period, you should study some se- selected comic books. <laughs> <laughs> you're fantastic i recommend batman especially for he tends to transcend the abysmal society in which he's found himself his morality is rather rigid too also i rather respect batman yeah i love the skip the skip the enlightenment it's rather dangerous propaganda it's dangerous propaganda he's not wrong <laughs> yeah pretty much my my social media goal is to um be the uh avenging sword of uh enlightenment propaganda That's does somebody sure. have an Ig- ignatius j riley twitter account because that would be a worthy cause that, that would be a wild follow yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna look that up it would just be like all quotes from the book and it would totally work <laughs> And then the occasional fart joke, just for the kids. Of course, there. of course, oh. valve, hashtag valve. <laughs> uh, open valve. Right. All right, Heidi, we made it through. We made it through an episode without Tim. Uh, it was, it was, it was a trudge, but you know, we had to do it. Yeah, we no. missed you, Tim. We did. Tim will be back next week. We'll be doing the final chapters of this book. And then that's how he mentioned, um, well, she didn't mention this part. We'll do the Q&A, of course, as usual. And then after that, we're going to do one episode on Henry Green's novel, Loving. Um, it's not real long. It shouldn't take you long to read, but it is an unusual book, which doing one one episode on it means It'll be fun. It won't be too much of a trial. And of course, we'll do our end of the year episodes, um, either one on fiction or one on nonfiction, or just one kind of massive episode at one time. We haven't discussed which, we're, which one we're going to do. Depending on our valves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to let that one lie. So we'll, we'll decide. We'll let you all know. Um, And then of course we've got Anna Karenina going on over on the Patreon page and uh, that's going well too. So as always, lots of, lots of content. Um, Thanks to everyone who's been listening and uh, we'll uh, keep plowing ahead. Heidi, thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks for opening the book up for me, David. You did a good deed today. (laughs) Or a foul one, I guess we'll find out. (laughs) Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.